Hi, welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutchison, joined by my co-host, Andy Collins. Andy, how are you doing today? Doing good. How are you doing, Taylor? I'm doing all right. It's a little bit rainy here in Nashville, so I've been spending a lot of time indoors, but, you know, that means uh, get to spend more time uh, hanging out with the family, watching movies, playing around with the computer, so uh, just enjoying being inside. Yeah, it's springtime, so it's good to get out. At least you can open the windows, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like uh, it'll rain for an hour and then it'll be uh, sunshine or no rain and uh, just kind of back and forth. So, yeah, we've gone outside a little bit and then hustled back inside when the rain started back up. It uh, It's raining just enough to keep me from having to mow my yard. <laughs> right, it's exactly. Uh, it's an awful cycle, right, where it's just for some reason it tends to rain more on the weekends and uh, that's the time we have to mow and then the rain makes the grass grow faster. So there's just it's just very tall grass everywhere. I know. I uh, I think, you know, I'm working from home now all the time. I think hey, one of these lunches, I'm just going to go out and mow and, and that's <laughs> never going to happen. I don't think that that's yeah, that's not what you want. That's, you know, lunch is for like decompressing for a second before you have to get back on another uh, Zoom call or Teams meeting and talk to more that people. That is true. The nature of my work is always on Zoom constantly. So it's nice to just be away and just sit, you know, sit, just sit quietly, maybe stare at the wall for a while. That sort of relaxing thing. Yeah, that's a whole topic. Uh, I'd love to to hear your thoughts on sometimes like or, are we not getting enough away time from work anymore now that, that, um, I mean, you and I are, are working remotely and, and a lot of other people in our profession are too. Um, is it impacting the quality of our work to, to basically always be on? And I don't know. I, I feel like it, it could be for myself. Yeah. That, that's something we could talk about. Maybe we could get some ideas from, uh, from listeners about that because I, I think you and I have very vastly different perspectives because we have vastly different jobs at this point. Mm, it's true, but I do find myself, I think in your teaching role, you've, you've obviously been in a position where you're talking all day, right? Talking to a lot of people and something has happened in, in my role in the last uh, six months. So I'm like an application architect for an enterprise and I feel like all I do is talk now. And, uh, I don't know. It, it's frustrating. Sometimes, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm getting work done, of course. Um, but I think it's that classic tale where you become an architect or, or a manager and your fingers don't get to be on the keyboard anymore. Um, but it's a little bit more than that. I think it's maybe something pandemic related, something that where people are just meeting crazy. Uh, they just <laughs> really want to have a lot more meetings. And so I'm not I'm not sure what that's tied to, but I, I've noticed something. Uh, in, in the last few months. That, that is interesting, actually. Yeah, I don't have that perspective at all. Uh, we, we probably do have a few more meetings now, but I think we have one more meeting a week than we used to have, which means that now I have two meetings a week. So I will say that there is definitely one of the advantages of my current role is literally I have, I have so many fewer meetings that I've ever had in, in any other job. Um, I am definitely on all the time. I'm talking to students. I'm talking to my co my my instruction team. We're working. We work in teams of three, and so we're constantly in communication. But as far as meetings go, that is that's pretty light for me. So I can tell you that that's nice. But we did feel that we needed to add a add a, a meeting uh, throughout the pandemic, just because we don't have as much sort of like 
in the hall time, you know, like running into each other. So, and then, and, and frankly, that's probably been the right thing to do, but I haven't, I haven't experienced any like sitting at home, not actually talking to anyone and needing to reach out that, that doesn't come up. Um, when I've worked remotely before, I did have that experience when I was, a, you know, a dev and I had a job where I was working four days a week remote and that I did, you know, once in a while think, you know, it'd be nice to maybe have some contact with somebody else in the, at, at all, you know, today. Um, so I, I can kind of appreciate that to some degree. Yeah. I guess my position currently is I would love no meetings and, and a lot less contact. Uh, I feel like, um, that we've, we've just gone too far in the other direction, but that's just me. I would, I would prefer a different thing and, and maybe it's just the variety that I'm looking for. I would, I would prefer some variety, but it's interesting that you bring up the, the kind of performance aspect, right? You're, you're always on is the way you phrase that. And I think that's kind of interesting that like there is this like actor role that you've, you've got when you're, instructing people or talking about something or trying to convince people to, to see a certain way. Um, it, it is in a way, it, it feels more like an, a performance, um, in the remote context than it ever did in the in-person context for me, at least. I don't know why that is. Maybe you're trying to like emphasize a certain point in a different way. And so you feel like you have to overact or over, over talk, a certain way um, where you would have relied on like a whiteboard or a physical or physical presence or physical cues in the past. Maybe that's because, you know, you, when you're in front of a mic, you're, you're on, it's like, uh, it's like this podcast, right? You're, you're just a radio personality, Taylor. Mm-hmm. So when they put a mic in <laughs> front of you and then you're just performing, right? Put a whiteboard. In, it feels like put it a whiteboard way. in front of you and you're just drawing boxes and arrows. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, anyway, what have you been thinking about recently? Well, it's funny that you you talked about how your role has changed because I've been I've been in that role, a uh, similar role, where suddenly my hands weren't on the keyboard anymore. Suddenly, I'm not. Um, I mean, this is before I became an instructor. I was kind of I tried on a few different hats: management, architectural hats, that sort of thing. Um, and, and I did suddenly find that my hands were away from the keyboard. I wasn't writing code. I wasn't, you know, actively contributing to the code base. You know, I, I, I'm trying not to say that I wasn't actually doing any work because, but that's sort of like part of my inclination to say like, you know, if you're not coding, you're not working. I know that's not true. Um, but you know how it is. Like, I feel like, you know, when, when you've, when you, at the end of the day, when you're writing code, you can look back and say, well, you know, at least I got those three lines written, right? Depending on, depending on how the day goes, right? At least I got this done. At the end of a sprint, you can look and you can really reflect back on your work. Uh, when you're working a little bit at a different level or a different kind of role, it's harder to see that you don't see the deliverables, right? But anyway, um, so I've been, I've been in that place and one of the things that I found difficult there, and I and I also find difficult in my current role, is is learning new things. You know, it's it's actually when you're not when you're when you're coding day to day, your individual contributor or whatever writing code, you sort of have maybe some motivation or at least some direction when it comes to learning something new. 
So if you're writing, you know, C sharp applications, you're doing some ASP.NET development or something, uh, you're, you're definitely motivated to keep up with those things. Uh, or if, if somebody, if, if the, if your application uses some specific technology using Redis, Redis for caching or something, you have not only a motivation to learn those things so you can be better at your job, but also you just have the focus. Like if you're trying to figure out what to learn. You know, like, oh, well, I guess I should learn this Redis thing. Um, right. Yeah. The job kind of narrows the scope and the immediate demands of it. You know, obviously you, you want to stay focused and, and spun up to be able to get the job done, continue getting paid. And so that and that's not something that we do as technologists, at least you and I, we don't just learn those things because we have to. There's a we have a motivation to learn those things because we're interested in them. And just because we change roles where we're no longer like day to day, you know, implementing, you know, software solutions or we're no longer touching technology or new technology all the time, at least doesn't mean that we're still not interested in learning. It just means that now it's harder to kind of figure out what it is that we should learn. Right. And we also have other non-technical things that we have to learn. I know I have over the past couple of years, I, I have had to learn, you know, some, some, you know, teaching styles, teaching techniques. Um, I've learned a little bit about sort of andragogy, which I'm going to continue to say. A lot of people will say pedagogy, but pedagogy is technically teaching children. But so I'm going to get, I like to be pedantic about that. Andra- yeah, you, you've got an uphill battle I there. I, I, I don't think I'm going to win, frankly. Pet- you know, the way the, the word is used, it's used kind of just to teach anybody. But technically speaking, it's just children. Um, and I teach adults. So. But anyway, so learning those kind of techniques, um, just simple things like you should always wait eight seconds after asking a question. And it is, I, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but it's, it is a long eight seconds. It's like riding a bull, right? It's, it's eight seconds and you've got to stay on that thing. Uh, uh, and you do that because, you know, it takes a while before some people will ask a question, you sort of make it uncomfortable. People who are like, they want to ask a question, but then they're not comfortable. You make it more uncomfortable to base, to remain silent. Um, right. It's, it's an interesting kind of negotiation technique as well, where you pose a question and then you just have to commit to the awkward silence, right? You've asked for something. And as long as you don't speak, you'll often find that people will meet you in the middle or, or like, uh, you know, talk, talk up and, and, and begin the negotiation. So I, I totally agree. I think eight seconds is a long time, but as long as you've learned to become comfortable with that awkward silence, you can really actually get what you want, which is for people to ask questions and, and, and go out. They, they, the awkward silence, they hate more than their own, um, you know, taking a risk and, and maybe potentially showing that they don't know something. And things like that, I've had to sort of pick up. That's just an example of one of the a small tip I can throw out there. There's there's other ideas about about different kinds of learning. You know, kind of active learning versus sort of more passive learning. So active is like you're you're doing stuff. It's more peer based a lot, like you're working with your your classmates versus listening to me drone on about um, you know inheritance or something. Is that um, what percentage of the teaching you do are your students, I guess, uh, working together versus working independently. I don't know if I've ever asked that before. Well, um, we do have some explicitly group projects. So 
you know, we, we sort of were always evolving the curriculum. So I can't say for sure, but there's probably seven, six or seven group projects uh, throughout the six month course, somewhere around there. But we're always encouraging the students to work together. And that, again, is that active learning thing. So you're you're helping each other. The person who is really, really true, the person who is the most equipped to teach something is somebody who just learned it themselves. And so a student who's just figured something out is really in a good place. Now, they might not have all the techniques and everything, but they have they're at a place where they have just discovered this knowledge so they can remember what it was like to not know it, you know. And so it was just like they didn't know it five minutes ago and now they do. And so like it's, you're never going to get any pure, any purer way. And of course, that teaching something also reinforces your understanding and deepens it. So we find that we really encourage the students to work together all the time. And some people are more comfortable than others. You know, some people need to go off somewhere and read and do their own thing and then maybe come back. And, and we, you know, we don't force it on students. But during the group projects, we we do, I guess, because we're. We're trying to also, you know, train people to work in the real world where software is built in groups. And so that's part of the reason for that, too. But, you know, we do lectures. Some we're kind of doing maybe fewer lectures than we used to. And some of that, I mean, I don't know really that's about being remote. Maybe some of it is a little bit about being remote, but it's really about being a little bit more intentional um, about really understanding that people don't learn as well from listening, you know, listening and watching. It's really doing is the most, act, you know, is the is the best way to learn. Um, and also, you know, have if you have written material, then that's something to refer back to while you're doing. So that can be a good, good combination. So we write out a bunch of stuff um, in our curriculum and people have access to that. Sort of thing. Yeah, that's got to be a hard road to walk where I'm sure there's going to be like, you know, five or 10 percent of students who absolutely learn best from just listening to lectures, but they don't represent the majority of the students. Um, so it's like, how do you, you know, do you take the utilitarian approach where it's like, well, most people will learn best by doing the activities, um, you know, the, the, the action of, of actually coding um it's, it's probably just a, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming it's a hard road to walk, figuring out what's going to serve the larger group uh, best. It, it, it is, but there, there is this sort of notion in our, in the zeitgeist or whatever of, of the culture, this idea that's floating around out there that says that people have learning styles. And, and that's not really exactly true. Um, so people... The, the, the idea as a really hard and, you know, restrictive idea, at least the idea that you only learn visually or you only learn auditorily or tactically or kinesthetically or whatever. Um, really, people have learning preferences and everyone can benefit from every style. And so it doesn't mean that everybody's going to benefit equally from every style. But it also doesn't mean that just because your preference is to maybe listen doesn't mean that you wouldn't be a little bit better off by doing more active, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, y'all, you have such a, a, a short window with these students, you know, six months, I think. Right. So you have to pick the thing that's going to accelerate them 
the most within that six months. Maybe over a long period of time, all ways of learning are going to be applicable. Um, but it seems like you'd have to pick the best one for that short, short duration that you have to instruct them. And so we, there's this notion of what's it, the zone of, I always get this wrong. I wish I'd looked this up before you started talking. The zone of proximal development. And so that's a fancy sounding term that really just means like you should, you should confront students with things that are just challenging enough that they need help to really get through it a little bit. So it's not so easy that uh, they, they, they never need to ask questions or never need to do anything, but just they, they just almost already know how to do it. And it's not so hard that they're just going to like flail and, and just not be ready for it. They don't have enough foundation or enough, you know, enough of the concepts. And so really the goal is to keep the students there as much as possible. Meaning that, you know, if you, if you have somebody at there where they need help in order to understand it, that sort of lean, you know, sort of is a reason to do a lecture, you know, so everybody is in the same boat here. No, nobody understands, um, you know, how web API controllers work. Right. <laughs> and right. so I, I'm not going to give you an assignment to go deal with web API controllers, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to give you this chapter, this little, this text to read and to show you some code so you can think about it. And then I'm going to do a conversation. And then we're going to have a conversation, a lecture about it. And then you're going to go off and do some, you know, some exercises. It's kind of the, the general flow that we have. Uh, there are some times when it's better to start with a lecture first because it's just completely brand new concept. Um, I don't know, something like, like SQL, you know, SQL is like, it just, you know, once you've been doing JavaScript and HTML and CSS and then suddenly here's SQL, you know, that, you know, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a tough transition. And so it's better to just say, well, let's just kind of talk about how we're basically doing, you know, it operations on data. It's the same kind of thing as the syntax is different. And, and then we can start talking about what a table is and, and all that stuff. Right. Well, you also got to you got to give the students the, the why SQL exists and the history behind it, too. I think if you set that context, that can really help with the motivation to learn it. Like, oh, you want to learn SQL because SQL is used in a wide variety of roles and it's historically been very important. And this is the thing that will help you in your career, you know, or, or very likely to help you in your career, at least. Um, and that that seems like it's best done. You know, the, the why and the historical stuff seems like it, it would be very lecture based. Well, that's a good point, actually. And and that's one of the things that separates sort of andragogy from pedagogy, this idea that adults adults need hitting us with right. that term again. Adults need <laughs> um adults are more I don't know, the, the way that it's usually phrased is adults need motivation. They need to know why they're learning something. Children are just in this sort of more passive mode. I guess they're, I, I don't know, I'm not a, uh, an expert in children by any stretch of the imagination, but I think, you know, a child is a little bit more accepting of things with it just, they're just kind of used to being taught stuff or used to learning things without any real direction or reason. They're just, oh, this is what you have to do. 
Um, but adults have been in the world. Adults have like adults have sort of start to realize that there's limited time on this earth, and you know you need to like be practical <laughs> sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. Why do I want to learn this when, you know, will this have any uh, applicability to my life? And I, I, I bet that children are also or would also be motivated by understanding the why. But it's maybe something we just don't do because they're like, you need to know. Trust me, you need to know how to speak the language of the people around you. So just learn it. I'm not going to tell you why, but you need to know this. Yeah, I think I think it's not there's not like a dividing line somewhere, some hard line that that you you reach the age of 18 and graduate high school or something. And now now you need to know why. Um, yeah, certainly, I'm, I'm sure. That, and, and I think, you know, I remember being in high school and having that like, why do I need to learn this foil method of like figuring out polynomials or whatever? Oh my God. Nobody, and nobody knew the answer. Like the teacher didn't know the answer to that either. Right. I don't, you know, so that, that would have been nice probably to have some idea, but then you have this sort of chicken and egg problem. Like you really need to understand this foundation before you start to understand the higher math where you use it. And you can't really understand that when it's complicated. So I'm glad I don't have to worry about that too much. Sometimes we do have to say to the students though, like, you're just going to need to understand this right now. We're going to, we're going to show you why later. You know, some of the the fundamentals of syntax, for example, you know, you just say this is just how it works. Answering like there's no answer to this question. Why do I put a semicolon at the end of the line? I mean, there is an answer to that question, but that involves us talking about parsing and compilers. And that's not going to be a good idea right now. You know, Mm -hmm. this is just the syntax. You have to put parentheses around your parameter list. It's just, you know, and then we can, you can come up with whatever you want to, to sort of like hand wave around that. You, said, you have to say like, what you, you just want to give them a little hug, right? You just kind of hug your parameters. They, they're, uh, they need, they need some security in their life. But obviously that's meaningless, but little things like that can actually be helpful to help, you know, to help people to remember it at least, even if they don't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In my, it took me a very long time to realize this about myself. I don't know if this is a universal truth, but it's a truth for myself, which is um, when you're struggling and when you're frustrated, that's actually when learning is happening. And I used as a kid uh, when I was learning something and I would just get, you know, I would get mad about not understanding it. Um, And that would cause me to want to quit learning it but only later did i find out like no that's actually the process of learning happening that's like your your brain absorbing that information and and um i think for me that's at least true i don't know if that's true for anyone else but that's i always kind of say that that you know the frustration is the process of learning happening no i think that's exactly right um we i think we have this romantic notion we talk about loving to learn and and so you know, you hear that, you hear that repeated so many times. Oh, I love to learn new things. It's exciting. I build. Um, and and somebody, you know, you hear that and you think, well, this is really painful and I don't like it. So I, I don't love to learn or I'm doing it wrong or this isn't the thing that I should be learning. So you kind of, it's, it's easy to get the wrong message, I think, because we have this idea that it should be pleasant. Like I don't love unpleasant things, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that we've probably as a society, um, as a civilization 
served a lot of students poorly by giving up on them or like encouraging them to say, Oh, you didn't like that subject or that frustrated you. Well, you, maybe it's not right for you. You shouldn't go any further in it. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree that this romantic notion of like, Oh, learning is like this, uh, beautiful thing. And you see this text for the first time and you instantly understand it. And wow, you were made for the subject. Um, you know, the, clearly this is the right thing for you versus a person who really gets bogged down in it and doesn't understand it. And, and we discourage them from potentially going any further. I tell my students sometimes like this is the part of the movie uh, that would be the montage. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. But that's the, that's the thing in, in popular culture and movies, they skip over. We often skip over or we condense down the hard stuff into like a 30 second montage and it's like, oh, yeah, they're, they're having, you know, oh, sure, there's a little grunting and running and sweating going on in this part. But, wow, they went from not knowing anything to being like the greatest hero of all time in 30 seconds. And I think that, in a way, um, also serves us poorly. But, yes, it is the montage section. of, of And that's movies. really like the, lo- the longest time, right? It's, you know, it's not just, you know. I of the tigers playing in the background, right? Like really the, the, in, in the real world, it takes a lot longer to actually do that struggling. You're sitting there in the library, you got your glasses on, you're reading books, you're surrounded by books or laptops or whatever, you know, or you're running up the stairs, you know, in front of the library or whatever you're doing in this montage. Or, or you're right? failing, right? Like not to mention like failures really cause the most learn or, you know, induce the most learning, at least in my life. Um, we, we often skip over the idea that you would actually um, try something and fail and be reset and try again. Uh, yeah, it, re- it really is the longest part, though. And, and it really is like something that people don't anticipate. And I think you're exactly right. Like, you know, it's the, the pain is when you know you're doing it right. And I'll be honest with you, like, it's not something that. I feel like I'm always as good at either, right? I don't always feel like I'm doing this right. So this is, you know, I, I, it's hard to want to lean into that pain. And some of that does come from sort of a motivation. You know, my students are on the whole very motivated and and they have us as instructors to kind of help cheer them on as well. But when I'm trying to learn something new myself, it's, you know, it's a little bit challenging to bring my own motivation and to be willing to do the hard part, you know. And I think the hard part when you're learning technology is to actually, you know, build something, I think. You know, I, I'm a big fan of listening to podcasts and sort of getting this sort of passive learning. And and, and it to some degree, it serves me well. It gives me a clue about something new that's out there. It gives me enough information to kind of talk intelligently about these things, which is sort of like a a dangerous place to be. I think, you know, like I can talk intelligently about some topics, but I don't really have the hands-on experience with, with them because I've listened to podcasts or, or listened to Pluralsight course or watched a Pluralsight course or whatever. Um, And, and some of that comes down to like, well, how much effort am I willing to put into learning this thing? You know, and, and how much, how important is it that I know this thing? You know, if I, if I'm, if I'm thinking about C sharp, you know, I know we talk about C sharp all the time and we're going to continue to do that. Um, 
And if I'm thinking about C sharp, like right now in my life, I do have a practical reason to think about C sharp because I'm trying to think like, well, what parts do I really want to teach? Like, where's the, I'm thinking about it in terms of, of curriculum right now, right? Like I need to understand broadly what's there so that I can figure out what to focus on, you know? Uh, an example of that, that I think we maybe talked about recently was the, you know, top level programs or top level statements. Like I introduced top level statements to my current class right after they kind of came out. And I thought that was great. And it it, it was because I was keeping up to date with that stuff that I was motivated, that, that I understood about it. Uh, we talked about records too. Records are something that I really would keep tr- wanting to introduce to my students. We keep like saying, maybe I shouldn't because I don't, they're, they're not likely to see a lot of that code in the real world right now. Um, right. Oh, you have that dual kind of responsibility, at least dual of, you know, what is the latest technology you want your students to be coming out with like fairly recent ideas, I suppose, but also what is the market requiring? And I, I would say the market is not yet requiring knowledge of records. Well, I, I want them to be able to come up to graduate and to go look at existing code and to have some hope of understanding it, you know, and if there are no records in existing code, then that's just noise. The top level statements is a different thing. Cause it's like, well, They've been doing JavaScript. They sort of understand that this is a file with code in it. So it's, I don't think it's a distraction. I, I think it's as a bridge to get from JavaScript over. So that was, that's why I introduced that. I feel like top level statements are also like a small enough concept. Like um, you can, you can introduce them and say, well, this is actually a cleaner, easier way to write or initiate a, a program. Um, and this is what's sort of happening behind the scenes. You don't really have to understand a whole lot of why there's not, a, there's a lot less philosophy behind top level statements, in my opinion, than there is like between records and classes and structs and mutability and, and all those things that would go along with, with some other discussions. So it's like a smaller, a smaller hill, hill to climb. And yeah, I think, I think that's right. And there's, there's probably not, there's not very many things that I really, that we teach that are actually new to C sharp, but I'm motivated to learn those things for that reason. I'm motivated um, to a certain extent. Uh, I have to maybe push myself just a little harder, but I'm motivated to, uh, to learn JavaScript, new features in JavaScript and I have to push myself even harder, but to learn things in CSS. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't realize you were covering those topics. Uh, is that is that for work or is that just no, it's so for, you're knowledgeable enough to talk to, to others? It's for work. I mean, I, you know, I do teach some of those things and it all comes up. And, and just keeping up with React, which is what we kind of use in the front end. But but I'm motivated to learn those things. And so and I, I, I have a way to apply that learning, or at least some of that learning. Right. If I if I'm learning about um, some of the more complexities of pattern matching in C sharp, for example, I've read some things about them, like, you know, where you can do 
I don't even know what they're called, the new ands and ors for some reason that are in the switch expressions and that sort of thing. Like I, I haven't actually ever written that code myself at this point. I've only read about that. And so I still feel like not, I kind of understand it, but I kind of also don't know why we're not just using ampersands and vertical bars or whatever. Um, or the, you know, the not is in there. Some, some of that, that more modern like ways of doing type checking is with pattern matching. I'm still a little bit unsure about what the bandages are to that versus more traditional approaches. Like checking to see if something's null seems to have changed dramatically now. And I don't know why. Um, <laughs> yeah, there it's, it's a lot of subtlety to those things that it might not be apparent. Um, but you're, if, yeah, I feel like sometimes those features are really, um, they excite the library authors and not the application authors <laughs> as much. Um, so but yeah, I, I get what you're saying though. It's like, uh, we already had semantics for this. Why did we need new semantics to talk about this? But, um, maybe they were trying to draw a distinction between those two things. And again, it goes to the, the subtlety of those features. Well, and there's, there's, uh, there's other things and I have used some things like I've used, I played around with, uh, uh, knowable reference types. And I definitely do like, switch expressions in general i think those are cool i mean i'm a big kind of functional fan and it's that sort of feel to it as well um but this is not really about me trying to figure out c sharp it's just i was just using that as an example of saying like i have some sort of motivation to learn these things and i also have a way to apply it you know it's not directly like all the time but at least i can sort of apply it by saying like is this a thing that I should teach my students? And if the answer is yes, then I can go deeper. If the answer is no, then I sort of don't have to go deeper. Maybe I, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Maybe, you know, I write some, you know, I write some code myself to just sort of keep myself a little bit fresh. So I might play around with some of those things. Um, but, but yeah, it, I don't know. It kind of, it, it kind of, um, it kind of fades away quickly or, or trails off, I guess. You know, at a certain point, uh, for example, I was recently doing some some work learning, trying to learn Rust, uh, and I'm interested in Rust conceptually, and I sort of have some ideas about it. So, like, I need to really dive into this and really understand what's going on. So, I was trying to find some some motivator, motivating example, or something, um, or motivating project to to work on and. And I, you and I talked a little bit about this offline, this, we're, this idea of like we could build a project in multiple different languages, you know, just kind of play with that as, a, as an example. And I started, I started like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing in C sharp. And I started working on it and then I'm going to build that in Rust and then I'm going to build it in Elixir or whatever. And it's sort of like, it, I, I guess I kind of hit a wall just to be really honest. Like I, I feel like I'm, I'm saying that it's hard for me and I appreciate sort of from some of my students perspective, like it's hard to do these things, but I, I'm trying to do this. Like, I don't, I don't have a justification. There's nobody's going to ever pay me to write Rust. I mean, maybe they will, if I find a way to be motivated in it, but nobody, I'm, I don't have like any, I'm not, I, I'm not actually interested in writing anybody pay me for writing Rust. Right. I'm not particularly interested in anybody pay me for writing Elixir, at, you know, even though it, Sometimes I think I might like that better, but I'm not sure. Uh, right now, I'm happy with what I'm doing now, in case anybody's listening. Uh, but um, 
<laughs> but one of these days, you know, I might be interested in, in, in writing some, some other code in another language. But the, the motivation sort of drops off at a certain point. And I find myself just being more passive. You know, I'll watch a Pluralsight video or watch um, or read through the Rust. There's like great Rust documentation. And I've read through it and I played with some of the, some of the code and like wrote a little code myself. But it's sort of like, I don't know, I just it's hard to get over that hump of like, what am I going to build? What am I going to do with this thing? Like, what's the purpose of this? Sometimes I like putting new Code Wars exercises because that gives me a kind of a constrained environment to write some code. But it's not quite the same thing as building something, is it? Hmm. So do you feel that it is this, um, you, you don't understand something, right? Maybe you are interested in the, the borrowing system or, or something like that, or the ownership system in Rust. And you're, you are like, oh, I just want to know more about that. I'm not sure how that works. It's different from what I'm used to. So then you start to go down this road and you learn just enough. You're like, oh, I realize how that works. And you don't feel like you need to go any further. You don't actually need to finish those code samples or build an application to, you know, you've learned just enough to satisfy and figure out that one thing or those couple things that you were trying to understand. And then you can move on. Is that something is that how you feel because i mean that that that's what usually gets me that's interesting yeah i think i think that might be there's there's enough i mean i think about motivation as kind of a fuel you know so there's enough in in the engine in the tank or whatever to get me to a place where i feel like i understand it better but I still would argue that I don't understand it well enough until I've written, you know, more code in it. You know? Yeah, I think there's there's like levels of understanding, right? There's understanding enough that it doesn't bother you anymore. It's like, oh, okay, I get what they're doing here conceptually. And there's understanding of like, I can use this. And there's understanding the highest level, which is like, I can teach this. Um, and I feel like oftentimes I'm going for that lowest level of like, oh, okay, it doesn't bother me anymore that I don't understand it. I can, I can move on and get back to like the things that, that are directly, you know, impacting my daily life. You know, I mean, that's, that's actually a super positive way to think about this. Uh, I've, I sort of, sometimes I beat myself up a little bit for not understanding or not going deeper. Uh, but you're right. You know, there's a lot of times it's sufficient. I'm happy enough. And something else is sort of nagging at me to dig into it. And some of this comes back to, it comes back to a couple of things, but uh, staying on the positive side again, um, it comes back to me, just my inclination is to be a generalist. I think we've talked about this before. We've certainly talked about it offline, if not on the show. Um, I've always been sort of a generalist. I like to have a breadth of understanding. And, and there is a cost to that. And the cost to that is that there's not too many places I can go deep. You know, there's always, there's all this talk about T-shaped developers or whatever, some kind of whatever other letters, a couple of different points sticking out. Um, and I, I, I tend, I guess I, I guess I'm kind of that way, but I sort of tend to enjoy the breadth and thinking about things. But, but sometimes what I end up doing is I go down a road over here. Like I, every few years I come back to looking at, at compilers and I look at, 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 uh, at parsing, uh, source, you know, source code and maybe building a building something myself or playing with, um, 
you know, understanding how type systems work, trying to understand how garbage collectors work. And it's like, I come back to it every so often, like, oh, I got new, the, there's energy that has refilled the tank. You know, now I'm interested in, in playing with this for a while. And then I sort of run out of steam. And now I'm over here looking at the borrow checker where I'm thinking about um, like total programs over here or some kind of like dependent types, kind of completely different sort of thing or or maybe not even technology, you know, maybe like um, trying to understand how to properly smoke a brisket is something that I spent some time <laughs> trying to learn, for example. Yeah. Now that, that that's interesting. Like the uh, deciding what to learn question. Um, I don't know. It, it's how these things come to us and what we draw from to to learn is a super fascinating topic. I don't. I don't know. In my own life, I don't know if I've done enough introspection to figure out like, well, why have I decided to learn? Uh, or to take some some Japanese classes, uh, I guess I'd have to like look back at my own um, past to figure that out. But or w- why why learn art or anything like that? I mean, for me, it's very easy to to say, well, why do I learn certain computer topics? Well, I'm a computer professional, and it, it's a lot easier to think of like, okay, I need to learn this for my job, or I need to learn this because it could become part of my job. That that's a very easy stream to to pull from, but. Uh, Overall, how do we decide what to learn? I don't know. That's a very interesting kind of meta question. What's your methodology? I mean, I, I, this is what I tell my students and I'll tell you that I try to do this and I sometimes do it successfully. My advice to students is there's, there's tons of stuff to learn. You're, you're going to be inclined to go down one trail and then discover something else and then go off on a completely different trail, right? And just learn different things and not ever get to a point where you fully like figured out the first thing before you moved on to something else. So the advice that I give to students is to have a list and to write things down. So as you come to them, you say like, Oh, I want to, you know, I want to understand abstract classes, which is not something we talk about too much, right? That, you know, put that on, you know, that that's on your list. And then maybe, you know, while you're exploring abstract classes, you discover um, default implementations and interfaces. Again, this is C-sharp thinking. Um, uh, I don't know, you know, and then maybe somewhere along the way, like you, in that, in that you, Learn about like you read something about like asymmetric uh, encryption. Anyway, you know who knows where you're going to end up on Wikipedia, right? Um, and you write that down. So what I've tried to do is is do that. Like I'm just going to make this list of things that I'm interested in coming back to. Uh, and then if you, when there's time and there's a moment, the idea is that you go visit that list. And you say okay. Not necessarily, it's not in priority order, but like what on this list sort of calls to me. So it's kind of a combination of I have done some pre-work, some pre-vetting of this list, but I've also like just going to be open to whichever one of these things is interesting to me right now, you know. And like I said, I've tried to do that and I have I have succeeded 60% of the time, I think. Because oftentimes like there's nothing on this list that interests me. I want to go do something completely different, 
or or like all these things interest me equally and I don't know how to pick, you know, that sort of thing. And it is really, it's really challenging um, to, to do that. And maybe, you know, maybe it says something about me that I, I lack some degree of focus or some kind of personal ability to focus without sort of having life dictated to me or a job dictated to me. I guess we all have things to work on, but that, that might be where I am right now. Mm. Yeah. I think the older I get, the less I am interested. And I think, I think there would have been a time in my life where I would have seen a Vue.js and React and Svelte and all these other like JavaScript frameworks and like, Oh, I really need to go actually build an app and all of these to, to better understand and talk about it. And, and I'm, I guess I'm at a point in my life and maybe it's more tuned into my role that, you know, I am an angular developer and, and an architect in an angular shop. And I really just need to know angular um, you know, we've made the investment, we've made the choice and I'm aware of sort of Angular's, uh, trajectory, I guess. Like I see it still being well-maintained. It's continued to be supported. There's no risk of it. Like all of a sudden, uh, dropping, being dropped. Um, so I'm thinking, hmm, I, I, I don't need to actually go learn all these things. I can kind of stay, you know, I, I follow certain people on Twitter that talk about those things and I can kind of see where, what the community's up to without actually learning anything about it. Um, yeah. So I feel like the older I get, the less I, I feel inclined to just sort of, I need to know this and I need to know that. And, and, uh, but at the same time, there's like a perverse incentive of, being sort of happy with what you know, and then you become like really protective of it. And, and I think the danger again, in this architect role that I'm in of saying like, Oh, well we do C sharp. Uh, we don't care about anything above version seven. Uh, ASP.net core 3.1 is good enough for us. So we don't care what's happening in five and six. Um, you know, I, I guess it's like a balance between making sure you're learning and, and staying abreast of the things that are coming out and how they might affect you and what could possibly be better and potentially changes in technology in the future versus I, I need to get my job done. And I, I know enough about what I, I've I'm currently doing to be effective at it. Yeah. I think, I mean, do you think that, do you think that's a good idea to sort of be grazing Twitter I mean, certainly parts of Twitter is not a good idea, but, um, you know, for the technology stuff or do you, I mean, sometimes I ask myself, like, maybe I'm not getting, I'm not getting enough information and I'm just getting just enough to be noise and to distract me from things I need to be focused on. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be careful on, on Twitter specifically of the people that are basically trying to sell you something. Versus the people that are trying to get information out there. And I think you've, if you have a keen eye and you've kind of follow certain people over the history, uh, you know, multiple tweets, not just singular tweets, uh, you can kind of get at like, oh, does this person have an agenda? Or are they trying to like trash something else? Um, or are they legitimately just saying like, Hey, this is a change that's coming in this new version of this library that you're interested in. Um, you know, you, you probably want to know this. So it, yes, it is actually not a good place. I think for the untrained eye, I think you have to be very careful before you uh, dive into Twitter for, for as a direct feed of technology, um, changes. 
I think I think this strategy, and not just Twitter, but this strategy that you laid out there of kind of like what I said earlier, this kind of keeping keeping an ear to the ground, you know, that kind of like I'm just sort of like aware. So you're thinking about Angular, your focus is there, um, but the the competitors to Angular, and that's going to lead you to keep your eye on the TypeScript and the future of JavaScript, I guess. But then the further, you know, maybe you focus more on TypeScript than JavaScript because, you know, let the TypeScript people focus on JavaScript for you or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. And and there's this sort of like concentric circles, I guess, around around Angular where you're kind of keeping up with some of those things. Um, I think that's pretty common. And then there's maybe the .NET space or maybe there's programming in general. I mean, that's a tough one, right? Like programming languages are coming out. There's a few that I'm sort of interested in, for example. Like every so often I sort of like look over and see what F Sharp's up to. Uh, More often I look over and see what Python's up to. You know, and Python's the example that comes to my mind. Like, you know, I see there's going to be a Python uh, 3.10 coming out um, in in the nearest future. And like, what's going on over there? What's going on with these types that they're doing? That seems kind of crazy. Um, And then I sort of see some of that on Twitter, like people arguing about whether or not types are a good idea um, in Python specifically. And I don't know. I, I find myself thinking, should I have an opinion on this? Should I understand any of this? I don't write Python. We do have a Python course where I teach, but I don't teach it. <laughs> you know, like, do I need, I, I don't know. And so I asked myself, like, maybe, maybe I, it will be, I would be better off focusing my attention on a few more things instead of this breadth of stuff. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, luckily, the internet and, and social media to a degree. Well, actually, I'll take that back. I'm not going to speak to social media yet. But luckily, the Internet, I think, at large, um, gives us the ability to sample from these different communities a lot easier. And we can check in and, and read the blog posts of, of the people that we found that we trust to say, like, here is a summary of Python 3.10's changes. Well, see, that's um, my question. Like, is that a good idea? Right. No, I, th- I I personally do think it is a good idea, or at least that's the strategy I go with. I like this sampling method. I like this idea that I can check in on that community without having to study it, uh, without having to really become a Python developer to understand what that means. Do you think that do you think that knowledge really sticks? Like sometimes I think, well, I, I, this knowledge is flowing past me and I don't know how much, you know, not all of it, certainly not all of it sticks. Like I want, sometimes it's hard, it's hard to know like what percentage, you know, I'm, I'm doing these cost benefit analysis, right? I'm like, okay, I'm going to read this blog post. I'm going to listen to this podcast about Python. You know, and that's the podcast is like 45 minutes an hour. It's blog post to take me 10 minutes to read. Like how much information is actually stuck versus like the hour and a half that I just spent on. Uh, for most people, for the vast majority of people, I'm sure the information doesn't stick. I mean, what you're trying to do is you're trying to gleam a couple of points. Maybe Uh, that's the strategy I go with. Like just try to, to understand a couple of high level points, but then you have to really resist the urge to, to talk about those points as if you truly understand them or if you're a master of that, that information. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I think that, um, I am in favor of that strategy. Uh, but but again, maybe that's just because that's the strategy I employ. I, I would be 
I would be interested in hearing alternatives. Um, but if the alternative is, well, just you've, you've chosen C sharp. So only pay attention to C sharp. There is no point in, in hearing what other communities are doing, even if it's a brief, uh, summary of what they're doing, uh, because you won't truly understand that. I think that we, we really, you know, again, maybe this changes if, depending on where you're at in your career, if you're a junior, if you're just getting into programming, my advice to you will be to stay focused. Like don't try to oversample from different communities. You'll, you'll confuse yourself. Um, or you're likely to confuse yourself. You know, there's probably people out there who can do it. Um, but as you get further into your career, you do want to sample and you do want to be able to develop strategies to deal with a, a flood of information coming from various communities and, and you, you want to develop strategies to, to figure out who are the right people to trust, who best summarizes stuff, who's not trying to like sell me something in this space. Um, so I think it's a very complicated question with not a very straightforward answer, but, but I do believe in this idea that, that sampling from different communities can be, and is likely to be a positive if you do it the right way. Yeah. What is the right way? It's a good question. Maybe there's, um, I mean, sometimes I think maybe there's a cadence, there's a proper cadence. I've heard, I've heard the advice that if you're, if you're actively a developer, you're working on a team, you're working on a product that you, maybe you're going to spend, I don't know, six months working on this thing or somewhere around that, you know, you, you know, some estimate of six months around it. Maybe you don't learn anything new during that time, except whatever you have to for that project. And you just accept the fact that the world has moved, is moving on without you. Um, and I remember, I can't remember who gave this advice, but it was in the context of JavaScript back a few years ago when JavaScript was changing weekly, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now it's only changing monthly or every six weeks, so it's not as bad. But, um, but when it was changing all the time, this advice was like, just accept that you're going to have to catch up at the end of that six months, you know? And so maybe there's something about a cadence of how often you poke your head in. And, and I'm not the kind of person to regiment myself and say, like, put it on my calendar. It's like, all right, right. It's, the, it's the 15th of the month. It's time to go look at F sharp or whatever. But I don't know. I yeah, no, the, the cadence is a good a good idea, but I think you're right. It has to be timed with, you know, our own moods, maybe, our own learning moods, at least. Um, the idea that, like, oh, it's Monday. It's the second Monday of the month, so today's the day that I learn best. I mean, I, I find that laughable. Um, yeah, It just depends on what's going on in your life, so you have to make those decisions at, at that time. Um, so, yeah, th- there's a really complicated calculus or there is no formula to the right way to do this, but I think it does involve a variety of, of kind of methods and um, yeah, there's probably not one right way to do this, this deciding what to learn thing or how to learn even. Um, I think it really comes down to like diversifying your strategy. You know, I've been at this, this role for, Two and a half years now, and one, a little over one year of that has been remote during the pandemic. And so I don't know how you measure time, you know, in that way. Um, and I think I've sort of, I think, 
you know, and I have definitely spent a lot of time trying to learn how to learn and think about that sort of thing. I've spent a lot of time thinking about it from an instructor perspective. And this is going to be maybe hard to talk about, but an instructor perspective who is trying to think about the students from their perspective, if that makes any sense, like from a beginner, like a brand new, I just like, I used to sell shoes and now I'm going to learn to code kind of situation, right? Which is all, you know, that's my students. Um, and not all the time, but, I, you know, I, w- I did something completely different and I learned to code and I want to learn to code now. Yeah. Now, that, that, those stories are always truly amazing to me. I think it's so fascinating that, that so many people are, are making that transition. That's another topic, <laughs> an entirely other conversation about what's happening in society and, and the growth of, of the coder profession. But yeah. But, but I think that I've reached this point where, you know, I probably it probably would have happened last year, you know, had the world not gone crazy. But uh, I reached a point where now I really want to start. I'm going to start focusing on um, thinking about learning myself and how that works and it, with the idea that I can probably bring that back to my work. So anyway, the reason I say that is because like I really want to revisit this topic. You know, I don't know if anybody who is listening actually cares uh, but that's not really why we do this, right? Is that right? We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's that's not why we do this. But at the same time, uh, we'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on on how how you learn. What's your strategy? So. We had this idea a few on, earlier on in the show. We had a listener named Larry, and Larry was like listening and yelling at us, right? So we definitely want that. We want to hear your 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 rants. We want to hear your complaints. We want to hear, may you know, if if you might agree, that's all. I guess that's fine. Um, we do want to hear that, but I do want to revisit. That. I do plan to, like, you know, over time, I hope you know, revisit that. I think that's kind of one of the things that we do is have these conversations. So, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, give us that term one more time. Uh, what what are you trying to get started? And it, this is the problem with this term I'm about to say because I always feel like I'm pronouncing it wrong. Yeah, see, that's a real problem. I'm not really, I need to go on one of those like pronunciation websites and like see what it, see what it says. But you are the only person <laughs> that I've ever heard pronounce right. this word. Um, so I'm just going to take that. That must word be for correct. It. I say andragogy, which is like, it's teaching adults. That's what that means. So as opposed to pedagogy. But again, almost everyone says pedagogy, no matter who they are. Even people I work with refuse to accept that we should say andragogy. So it's an uphill battle. That's what it is. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, a lot of my uh, university professors would talk about pedagogy. And um, I guess I never even challenged that, that, uh, even though I understood it to mean teaching children. At that time anyway. So, um, well, if you do have comments, listeners, please write us in um, either on Twitter or in Gmail. Um, our Twitter is RefCountPodcast. Our email is RefCountPodcast at gmail.com. So we would love to hear what you have to think about this topic, about learning, how you learn, what you decide to learn or not learn, and, and kind of strategies for sorting all of that information. And eventually we'll, we'll revisit this topic and we might read your comments. On yeah, I want to hear what people think about this sort of grazing approach to learning mm-hmm. and like keeping your ear to the ground, that sort of thing versus being focused. And how do you know what, like how much you should do of each, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, I'd say it's arguably the the most or one of the most important things you could possibly do for your own career uh, in the computer profession. So developing that, that right strategy. So, all right, great conversation, Andy. I guess I'll speak to you next time. That sounds good.